Absolutely. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, uh, Chris, he's a, he's a PJ like yourself and speaks very highly of you and shared your story. And ironically, a few days later, I read something that said, uh, the only guy that David Goggins, like, I, it wasn't feared, but really, really revered in regards to having a work ethic and a high set of standards and the way he pushed was you. And I said, oh, my goodness, I think I know who this is. And I was super impressed with that. I think he may have trained with you one or two times, and he was super impressed with your high level of fitness and um, mental fortitude. Um, uh, you know, David and I are still uh, great friends. Uh, um, we communicate pretty regularly. Um, there was a time he, he told me that he used to tell people that I was his dad. And, uh, you know, that's a story we met in when he was a uh, Civil Air Patrol cadet. And, you know, I had volunteered to teach that course. I was stationed at uh, Kirtland Air Force Base as an instructor. Uh, Civil Air Patrol is the civilian arm of the rescue forces for the Air Force. And we have a, a great working relationship with them. Uh, we do in the summer months for the cadets, we run a couple of courses. We have the basic one and we'll go to them at different locations. And we have an advanced course that we run in uh, out in the Santa Fe National Forest in New Mexico. And I was on a couple of facilities around the country and it was one that David uh, happened to be, you know, our past cross. I, I don't believe in coincidences and our past cross at that time. And I was with another uh, guy, a survival instructor, Bill Burton. And so he and I, you know, we played good guy, bad guy, you know, you, like, you know, in basic training, uh, you know, drill instructors, the uh, first couple of weeks, you know, these are hard and you don't like them and they don't like you. And by the end, you know, you're bonded and they've, uh, they have formed you into uh, the best military person, soldier, airman, sailor, you know, Marine that they can. And uh, so we went into this uh, course, we had them for a week. And, you know, David uh, was in the class. Bill was more of the classroom instructor. And I would take him out in the morning and I was doing my own PT. And, you know, I have these kids that are 13 to 17 years old. And, you know, so I was showing them a little bit of what it's like to do PT in the military. So I'd, you know, hit them for 45 minutes at least on a heavy calisthenics workout, push-ups, flutter kicks, uh, hello dollies, jumping jacks, stretching, just, you know, just repeating those uh, rotations and doing, you know, like flutter kicks. I'm, I'm doing 100 and... None of them can keep their legs up. They're all struggling and, you know, it's all great. You know, I'm a big, bad military guy, hammering these kids out there in PT. And, but, but they, they enjoyed it, whether they could do it or not. And then we go for a run and, and David took to it. I mean, he was on me like a, a, a dog on a bone. He was following me around and he was like, I, he loved it. And that was, you know, looking back for talking to David, you know, that was a, um, an instrumental turning point in his life and found found that and and uh so that's, that's how far back we go with that and i'm i'm honored that uh, david still thinks that i was talking to him the other day sent him a few pictures from the climb i just came back from and uh, river rafting and 
you know, so next year you're on it, buddy. So if he can work it into his schedule, he's a busy guy. His mother, his mother's oh, yeah. a great person. Oh, yeah. I love Jackie. It was really funny when uh, David came to, uh, called me, tracked me down after that course and wanted to be a PJ. And, and uh, so he asked me if he could come stay with me and, and learn how to, uh, you know, swim and exercise and what it'd be like to, to be a PJ. And so he was with me for a few weeks and I was stationed in Key West and we were out in the water swimming, fishing, you know, and doing all those fun things. And I remember when he finally went home and Jackie calls me and she's, you know, I, I don't know how to read Jackie and at this point, and she says, what did you do to my son? And I'm thinking, oh, what, what happened, you know? And she said, I said, what, what happened? And she said, well, all he talks about now is being a pararescueman. He says, you told him he needed to gain weight because he was a skinny little kid. He said, you told him that he needed to eat peanut butter and banana sandwiches, and that's all he eats now. And he's got pictures posted around his room of you, and all he talks about is being a PJ. And I was like, you know, I'm beaming with a smile. And I said, well, what's wrong with that? You know, and, you know, uh, you obviously know David's story, his book, and everything, and the oh, yeah. rest is history. And we're oh, yeah. still making yeah, it. Certainly we ain't power. stopping. Oh, yeah. I mean, you've had a powerful influence on him and on so many other people, and I'd like to get into that and then certainly hear about the climb later on but you know at what age did you know that you wanted to go into the military um i guess there was you know growing up um wasn't really sure what i wanted to do i didn't really apply myself in school uh, you know, I can't blame it on things, you know, as far as parents being divorced at a young age, I'm like six years old, and then, you know, I'm 15 when he died, I think it probably being in the Navy probably killed him from mesothelioma and asbestos in the ships. So I was kind of uh, running around, being wild, not sure what I wanted to do, skipping school, going to the beach, lifting weights, and I did graduate, you know, made it through high school and fooled around for a couple of years, and I was working as a butcher in the grocery stores and uh, one of my buddies says, hey, you know, we should go down and we should go join the Air Force because it will it will be exciting and we will see the world. And I thought, Man, that's a good idea. So and I went down to the Air Force recruiter and walk in. I didn't know, you know, anything about it hardly. I mean, I'd been to air shows when I was younger and stuff at MacDill Air Force Base and he said, what do you want to do in the Air Force? And at that time, I thought everybody in the Air Force flew jets. So I said, man, I want to fly jets. Mm -hmm. You know, he said, you got a college degree? I said, no, not yet, but I'm working on it. Thought about, the, you know, the times I was goofing off. And he says, well, you, you, you can't be a pilot. You know, you don't know. You can't, can't fly any airplane without a college degree. What else do you want to do? So I'm not even really sure I want to go in the military and, Air Force and everything. I said, I don't know. What, what other kind of jobs are there that I can do in the Air Force? He says, well, here's some old videos I have. Why don't you watch some of these videos? They're different jobs in the Air Force. Maybe you'll see something that you want to do. I started watching these videos and went through different things, 20, 30 minutes. Wasn't really, I still a lot of great jobs, but it wasn't exciting, something I wanted to do. And then the scene, one of the changes to a different job and there's a young man standing 
proudly in front of this old wooden locker. He confidently introduces himself as a pararescueman, a PJ. I had no idea what that was. There's gear hanging all over his locker, all kinds of gear, climbing gear, scuba gear, jump gear, everything. And then he starts putting on scuba gear, full suit, top to bottom, including scuba tanks. Scene changes, they get on a big airplane, I find out later is a C-130. They take off, when they got on the C-130, they hung more stuff on him, they hung bundles on the front of him, they put a parachute on top of the scuba tanks on his back, hung some more bundles around his back section, airplane took off, flew around a little while, showed different jobs, everybody worked together as a team. The doors open, PJ waddles over with 100 plus pounds of gear and jumps out of that C-130, parachutes down into the ocean and opens a, a one-man life raft and climbs in it. And I, I stopped the video right there. I said, that's it. I told the recruiter, that's it. That's what I want to do. I want to be a PJ. And then that started the process for me to get in the Air Force. And I had that single track mind that I was going to be a PJ one day. So. Mm -hmm. That's super interesting. Uh, kind of did you know it was one of the? What's that? Uh, no, I didn't know it was one of the hardest uh, events, and I wasn't a good swimmer when I went in, but I didn't know it. And uh, when I when I told that recruiter, I said, "I want to be a PJ. That's it." And he stopped what he was doing. We were in a room. He was talking to somebody. He looked at me and he said, "Those guys are crazy. Are you crazy too?" You know, and I, before I could answer him and say maybe a little, and he, you know, he went on and told me what, what I needed to do. It was going to be, it wasn't a guaranteed job. I'd have to enlist under open general. So that was a little bit of incentive all the way through. If I failed out, the Air Force could put me in any job they wanted to. And I didn't want them to have that power over me. So I had, I had a lot of incentive to want to get through it. And, and I grew up in Florida uh, near Zephyr Hills. And that was a parachute club there. I used to go out and watch the guys and gals jumping out of airplanes and it was something I always wanted to do. And this was, this was my ticket to doing it. Obviously, uh, so Scott, that's later about more about the job. Yeah. So can you walk us through that training? Because I heard about the pipeline and I heard that the dropout rate and correct me if I'm wrong, is higher than the Navy SEAL dropout rate. And I'd like to you to take us into some of the tests. And was it hard for you? Was it easy? Which ones did you struggle with? And how did you mentally prepare yourself to push through the hardest pieces of it? Uh, all right. You know, I'll try to remember uh, some of the training uh, pipeline. I mean, I can certainly remember all of it, but... Uh, it's it's evolved a little bit since then. You know, at that time when I went through, we were not paramedic rated, and now the PJs coming out of the pipeline are, are paramedics. Later in my career, when uh, PJs were required to be paramedics, they, they piecemealed us out to different uh, locations to get that paramedic rating, and, and now every PJ does come out with a paramedic rating. So when I went through, the pipeline was uh, about about a year and a half long. 
month, year and a half to two years, depending, you know, when you could get your schools and how the, the cycles went. Uh, now, with the full-on paramedic course included, they're taking uh, two years plus to get a PJ through from start to finish when they enter the, not counting basic training, but some uh, guys are cross-training from other career fields. But when they start the actual pararescue and introduction course, so that course, and it is a high washout rate. I, I know there's, you know, different services uh, that have this um, physical requirements, and especially scuba have high washout rates. Uh, you know, just to get to the point to start the course, the the Air Force spends many months just like probably in the Navy does, recruiting guys to fill a class to start. So they, before you even start, they've gone through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of applicants to just pass the minimum pass test, the physical assessment and stamina test. That's, you know, I don't even know exactly what it is now, a, a mile and a half run in your boots and a time on it, push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, um, just a, a few um, physical exercises like that. And everything's, you know, you have to meet certain numbers on your calisthenics and then certain time in the pool. At that time, it was a 1,500-meter swim. I, I think now they cut it down to 500 meters in a, in a shorter time period. And so when we started the class, we had a, about 130 guys in, the in my class that started. Uh, my class number was 8002. I joined in uh, January of 79. Class numbers were about a year out from where you, where I started. Uh, so, and we graduated out of that, that course. It was about a two-month two -month program there at Lackland, the introductory course. And we left Lackland Air Force Base with eight guys out of that 130 or so. And then if you count in the rest to wow. get to that course, you've you know, you've got a really high dropout rate. Dropout rate um, was very regimented. You know, they, they have the instructors, and you know, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I, in my mind, the instructors can see everything. They know everything. So you just you you toe the line and and do what what they what schedule they have for you, and uh, it's pretty much morning till night. Uh, you wake up. You do your details, you run to the chow hall, you run back, you get your, for us, our schedule was we we, uh, we would go out on a run, we'd, we'd start the run with our swim gear, we'd run by the pool, we'd drop it off, and then we'd continue our, our run Monday through Friday, and then we have, were tested on every Saturday. And then after our runs, and they each week they increased uh, in distance, and uh, time requirements. Then we'd come back to the pool and then we'd swim for uh, several hours. By that time it was lunch. We'd run to lunch. We'd run back to the barracks. Then we'd have uh, a classroom for a couple hours. And, and then after that, the instructors would take us in what we called the dungeon, was one of the older buildings. And we would go downstairs in the, in the dungeon and and on the mats and have a calisthenic session for about an hour and a half. And, uh, and it was instructor led, but 
they weren't doing the exercises. They were leading by, you know, standing up and watching us. And they didn't, you know, they didn't have to actually be on the floor doing them with us, but um, it was up to us to do it. And so that course, that was about a two-month course. We left there with eight guys. We went straight to jump school at Airborne School at Fort Benning another few weeks. So we left there. Uh, we, we flew from there to Key West. And there, most classes would get to jump into the water at Shark DZ at Key West, Florida. And uh, well, that was another couple of weeks. Uh, you know, the, I can go into real in-depth with the type of equipment that was being used. Uh, it's uh, the old um, rebreathers. That, uh, they were they were not the nice draggers that they're using now. They were the ER-1000 or something like that. And, Anyway, we left there after a few weeks. We went to uh, survival school, and then we, and that was in Fairchild, and then we ended up back at Kirtland where they put all those things you learn back into, uh, you know, as a team, you're, and now you're doing more parachuting. There, there we used to learn how to jump into trees. We wear a, a suit oh, wow. that had some, just like a football pads. We would have uh, styrofoam pads sewed into our, a nylon suit and the, the object is to land in a tree and then you have a lanyard that you would in your big uh, pocket on there and you'd, you would hook it in like you were rappelling down and you'd unhook from the parachute and rappel down from the trees uh, water jumps medical phase which was an intensive medical phase but we didn't get a certification from a civilian agency an EMT and tactical phase, mountain phase, and then they put it all together and culminate with exercises, uh, you know, like a, a downed air crew or something, and graduate, get more air crew qualification skills, uh, gunner, uh, flying as an air crew member, depending on which unit you're going to, and then you go off to your first unit. And then I, my first unit happened to be uh, Woodbridge, England. Oh, wow. Interesting. Interesting. Do you did you go through Black Thursday? No, that wasn't uh, something. That, that those are things that have grown, you know, since I've been in there. I mean, we, they they hammered us hard, but they didn't have the Hell Week for us, and they didn't have like you say Black Thursday. It was pretty much okay. Like I had mentioned, uh, waking up. Running, swimming, exercising, classroom, and that was that was what they did to us all day long, Monday through Friday, and then Saturdays would be the culmination test with your runs and exercises. So, Scotty, you, you said you weren't a great like swimmer. Free fall and okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to cut you off. You said you weren't a great swimmer, but this is like a serious aquatic class there's it's a lot of swimming holding your breath underwater back and forth how did you prepare yourself mentally for that well i i could swim underwater i i i mean i did breath holding things when i was young you know i grew up in florida hey i swam you know i was good at swimming underwater and holding my breath it wasn't a, a person that could do a real uh, discipline 
uh, freestyle technique and learning to get through the test. Um, those, those were the initial uh, training uh, or initial things that you, you did. After after uh, several weeks of that type of swimming, then you swung to all fans. It was more of wearing the big fans and, you know, kind of hold your one arm out and guide yourself. And you're on your side, you reach up and take a breath, and then you're underwater and, you, and you're swimming. So, um, and then as far as free stroke, the instructor that was there told me, he said, this is, you got to start stepping it up and this is how you do it. And, you know, told me the technique and I got in the water and did it. I mean, uh, yeah. Okay. Understood. So did you learn, uh, you know, we, the people that listen to this are a lot of athletes, uh, people who are involved with team settings. What did it teach you about being a part of a team? Could you reference a few things and a few experiences about how important team is and how to be a great teammate? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think I came in with the team mindset already. I grew up playing uh, sports, you know, football, baseball, wrestling, although wrestling is kind of an individual sport, but you're still part of a team. So the football, the baseball, you're counting on each other. I grew up with that mindset of a teamwork. Uh, so I was always physical, running, and exercising, and lifting weights. And so going in into that, um, I didn't have a problem with that. And and lifting weights, I I actually um, lifted a lot of weights. You know, it wasn't like a super duper uh, power lifting heavy weights, but I was. I was strong enough, you know, to, you know, do my heavy reps or whatever it was. So I, I had, I had good strength going into it, and um, the, the mindset, the teamwork. You know, although when you're first in it, I mean, you're you're learning that teamwork. It's kind of you know, you're 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 an individual, and you've got to meet certain milestones to be able to progress. You know, to continue on in training, or you'll, or you're gonna get set back. And back then, there was no recycle. If you missed something, you were done. You were out. Maybe three years later, you'd be able to try out again. So it was kind of, you know, you're building those bonds with the guys, and you're, you, the teamwork the, that we had was, you know, a rope that we would all carry and run with side by side, or. A, um, a rail from a train track, you know, and and building that type of teamwork that you got to work together, but you still have both mindsets and you, you know, nobody's swimming for you. Nobody's doing your push-ups for you. You got to do them. And the, the building came of the teamwork really came later. You're a little bit okay. in there, like I say, you run with ropes, you, you know, if you're not running in step, you're screwing things up and making it harder on each other. So you're building friendships and and the teamwork. And you know, I remember you know all of the guys in the class. Some have passed since I graduated, but you know you build lifelong friends. And then it doesn't matter. Uh, you're a PJ, so you you can step out of that role and not see somebody for 20 years. The next time you see them. It's, it's like uh, 20 years was never passed. And even if, if you weren't in their class or you weren't in their generation, you're, 
there's, there's still a bond that's there. That's great. That's great. Are you, uh, I know you, and I'm sure you've talked about this uh, a lot. Do you, uh, are you okay with talking about, uh, you know, the, uh, your, your accident in your fall? Uh, yeah, I don't have a problem with it. I, I talk about it. I, I have people ask. I'm, um, I don't know how much, you know, you want me to go into it, uh, the parts that I remember. Yeah. Uh, some of it I don't remember. I tell people I have two memories, a conscious memory and an unconscious memory. But uh, if you want me to, uh, to start, you know, to expound on it a little bit, I certainly can. Yeah, please. Sure. Um, so... So at that time, you know, where I was, you know, we were stationed in uh, North Carolina and we would rotate uh, on one on 13 week cycles, basically, to the other teams that we were attached to. I was attached to a SEAL team in Virginia on an on alert cycle. We were doing local training. Um, we were going out, we decided we were going to go out and do a local, a local jump. Now, a couple of things that I said, I have two memories, a conscious memory and unconscious memory. And I also talk about choices. And the choices, you know, when you're young, I know when I was young, it took a while, but you don't think about how the choice you make today will impact your tomorrow. And that means whether it's the next day, next week, next month, next year, or 20 years down the road, that choice can still have an impact on you. And in a team environment, if you're all PJs, you all have the same skills. You, you don't, you know, you don't train each other on your job. But when you're in another environment, like we are when that time with the SEAL team, and say you got 20, 30 guys on the team, everybody you know, it has different skill sets. Somebody might be the weapons expert. Somebody might be communications expert or intel or EOD or, as me, the paramedic. So you kind of cross-train each other on job, set, job skills because if you go into an environment that's hostile, uh, you don't know who's going to get hurt or killed and not be able to do the job. So you, you're able to pick up and... and make sure the mission continues. So on a Tuesday, which was February 3rd, uh, 1987, as a paramedic, I was teaching the team I was with um, first aid techniques, how to stop traumatic bleeding and how to open airways, up to how to do a cricothyroidotomy. We had styrofoam cups, we put pictures out of a anatomy book, taped them to the uh, cup so you could, and we had to feel each other's, your partner's throat so you'd know the landmarks and, and look at the picture and then mm -hmm. use your knife and put a hole through it basically, carefully put a hole okay. through it. And uh, so that was the, that was the things I, I was teaching the guys on Tuesday. The next day, and that was a choice I made to teach that. So the next day, in that jump, we jumped out at 13,000 feet, free fall down. I opened my parachute with a chest deployed handle at 3,500 feet, another jumper still above me in free fall, 
saw me, realized he couldn't avoid hitting me, balled up in a cannonball position, crashed through the parachute, uh, destroyed the canopy, knocked me unconscious, shattered my skull, and then I fell the rest away. Estimated, I didn't, don't remember it, the guy said estimated to hit the ground about 100 miles an hour. While I was falling, two of the seals in the air, uh, Dave Bodine and Bobby Mayfield, they saw me that I was injured. Something was wrong. They didn't know what, but they directed and steered their parachutes as near to where I landed as they could, which was about a mile from the actual drop zone. And they got to me first. Uh, they said I was unconscious, um, kind of slumped over, kind of laying on my back. I wasn't breathing in a convulsion. And from the day prior, you know, teaching them to clear the airway and they monitored my neck and body and turned me over and said about a gallon of blood poured out of my mouth because I had an open skull fracture head. And then uh, after that, that poured out, then uh, uh, David said, uh, Dave said that I reached up kind of to him and said, hey, I'm, I'm injured. Help me gasping. I wasn't clear, you know, because I, I couldn't, I had, I had missing teeth and everything was broken. And uh, so then from there, it was about an hour before the guys could get there and get me out to an opening. And they actually called in a life flight helicopter. Life flight came in and took me to uh, Virginia Naval Air Station. Uh, the surgeons and uh, nurses and med techs there, they did a, a wonderful job taking care of me and, and putting me back on to recovery. And the crike was actually done when I got to the hospital. The other um, PJ was Larry Yakamoto, and we were switching jumps, so he was on the drop zone, and I was jumping. And uh, so he got over there, and he, you know, once he got there, was able to help monitor and um, kind of stop the bleeding, but really couldn't stop it. So it was it was a struggle, but kind of got me to the hospital and. And uh, down the road, a few more surgeries. Ended up in Boston, Mass, with Dr. William Montgomery, who reconstructed my trachea because I had problems with that. And he he actually uh, reconstructed it. And uh, it's about 80% now of what it should be. And uh, I'm good to go. The Air Force, the personnel system had been trying to, first they were going to medically retire me. That didn't happen. Then they were going to cross train me, and that didn't happen. You know, I had I was fighting it all the way, and I wasn't letting it happen. And then I was had my AFSC, my specialty code as a pararescueman, taken away from me, and they made me an airman with no job, and basically said, when you're healed as much as you can be healed, we're going to kick you out. And at that time, I said, okay. But I was able to stay one step ahead of the system because I was in, in the JSOC arena and had a different uh, chain of command there and straight to the Air Force. And I was able to stay one step ahead of them. And mm -hmm. once the Dr. Montgomery reconstructed my throat and said, you are, you're as healed as much as I can heal you. It's about 80% size diameter that it should be. Won't ever get any better than that. Then it was like, okay, now I have to shift gears. I got to go back down to Fort Bragg. I got to get a physical fitness PJ qualification test completed, and I have to do a medical 
uh, uh, waiver request, and we sent that to the Surgeon General. At that time, I didn't have much anything. I really didn't have anything to lose. I thought I would show some confidence to the Surgeon General. Looking back, it may not have been the confidence that I thought it was showing. Might have been more of a smart ass kind of comment, but. And when you fill out these medical forms, they usually there's a spot that says, what do you think is a condition of your own health? You know, I'm thinking I eight, almost 18 months and all this stuff I've been through, am I going to, I want to get back on status. I'm not going to tell them my health is questionable, right? So I, I said, my health is excellent. I can run seven minute miles. Can you? And so that was the way it was sent to the Air Force Surgeon General. Uh, a few weeks later, oh. our pararescueman and also team doctor, uh, Craig Silverton, he's a, a major at the time, calls me to his office and says, hey, your, 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 your request is back. You need to come to my office so we can talk about it. I thought, well, that's it. I'm done. And I went in there and mm -hmm. he teased me a little bit. But finally, because uh, when I gave me the paper, the first thing I saw was a handwritten note from the doctor, the surgeon general that said, I may not be able to run seven minute miles, but I can answer all the questions. So I thought, well, that's it, I'm done. I didn't, I didn't answer all the questions on this very important piece of paper. And so uh, Craig let me squirm a little bit there, you know, get some tears coming to my eyes as man, I know I'm done and no more PJ. And then he gives me the rest of the paperwork and I see the stamp that says, you know, I'm waiver request approved and i'm like i'm a pj again and we went right out uh, within a couple of weeks went straight up in a 130 and and started jumping so then i could i could take all that back to the personnel and say waiver request done signed off surgeon general and here's my jumps and i'm i'm a pj and then they they, they didn't kick me out <laughs> wow. That, that's that's amazing. Did you have any uh, going back up there and jumping again? Was there any uh, anxiety or did you have any fear, honestly? I, certainly, I did have fear. I think one of the things we learn as as PJs and other military personnel going into hazardous environments or whatever it may be that you have fear but you don't let the fear control you. Fear is energy. And you learn to control that fear and it becomes energy that you can use for good to help you. And take a few deep breaths and press on. And you, you know, you've been well-trained, you, you know what to do and just, just do it. And maybe it happens again, maybe it's possible, maybe it doesn't, but so my first jump back, we went to, uh, from the unit, we flew to Eglin Air Force Base because we were doing, or Hurlburt Field, because we were doing some training down there, so water work. And my first jump back was uh, a day jump, and I, I told the guys I'm with, I'm like, look, I don't want anybody in the air around me. I want to be the last person out of the plane. So I said, yeah, no problem. So. When it was time to go and everybody went, the jump master and the team went, I was a couple of seconds behind them. You know, like that's it, flying the 130, 130 miles an hour, you have a huge distance spread. I jump out and by myself, 
deploy my handle and I have a I have the biggest nibbler parachute I've ever had in a jump and it's not opening. It's wind. I just flapping. I'm like, what? This can't be happening again. So I'm watching my altimeter because I have to if you have to cut away at uh, 2,700 feet was our, our cutaway. I'm shaking the risers. I'm looking at the altimeter. And it was just 29, 20. I'm thinking, oh, shit. You know, I'm going to have to do it again. 20, 27. I let go, and I was going from my uh, reserve handle. Right then, the parachute just popped open. And it was, oh it was just like God was saying, welcome back to jumping, PJ. And... Uh, Oh so that was a day jump. The next one was a night jump. And uh, we jumped. Now, this one was a scary one. The jump part wasn't scary, but we jumped about 15 to 20 miles off the coast. It was supposed to be a, a, a safety boat out there, a safety ship. I never saw it. I'm sure it was out there somewhere. But we put up. A zodiac, and we're doing a hard duck. You put the zodiac, it's full of air. You put it on plywood and you rig it with parachutes. And when the door, when it's time to jump, you push that out and then you follow up out behind it and, and jump. So, again, I was the last one out. I was like, okay, I'm, I don't want anybody near me at night, especially. And uh, at this point, I wasn't ready to, to link up and close to anybody. So, we jumped, the boat went out. We all jump out, no problem, free fall, altimeter, boom, open my chute. Uh, not, it's not a windy, it's calm, I'm coming down. When I landed in the water, the parachute came down over me. Uh. And these parachutes, they had told us they were end of life cycle, we were just gonna cut them off of us and let them go, let them sink. So, but now the parachute's on top of me. I'm by myself, 15 miles off the coast. The guys are spread out probably a mile away from me. And I'm like, okay, get out from under. So you, you train this. In survival school, you train with parachutes over you in the water. So you reach up, you grab it, you just start pulling down the steam, you get out. So now, okay, I finally, I'm free of the parachute. But uh-oh, one of the lines is now wrapped around my gear, my leg. Parachute is pulling up with water, and it's like a big sea anchor. It's pulling me underwater. So now I'm choking from the UDT vest and being pulled underwater by the parachute. I'm like, all right, this is it. I'm done. I'm like, okay, get the air out. I reach up, I find the release, air release valve, and I'm pulling it down. I'm letting air out. A couple seconds, I got enough air out of it. Still struggling with the parachute, and... I have my knife, and then suddenly the rope, the 550 cord is off of me. I don't know how it happened, and I'm free of the parachute. Now the swells are like 15-foot swells out there, so when you hit the top of the, of the crest, I look around for the chem lights on the boat, and I see them there at least a half mile away, and I just start swimming. And I get there and get on the boat, and then we do our mission. So those are my introductory parachutes back to jumping. It's amazing that you've had so many of these close calls. I, I, I heard you speak on another platform and you referenced what yeah. you experienced when you were out, when you were unconscious. Can you uh, reflect on that a little bit? 
Yeah, yeah. And so that was where I talked about I have two memories, a conscious memory and an unconscious memory. So the conscious memory is the day of the jump. I remember we loaded up in the trucks, or six-pack six trucks. We had probably four or five of them that were driving out with the team, and we're driving to a civilian drop zone in Virginia. Along the way, you know, we stopped at the 7-Eleven stores or whatever they were and, and got coffee and sodas, milk, donuts, all that kind of junk we're buying. And, and we press on to the drop zone. We get ready. The helicopter, we were jumping out of a Marine CH-46. And while we're, we know we're getting our gear on, we're, we're doing our dirt dive of how we're going to jump and where we're going to be in the air and, and what altitude we're going to open. And then we load the, load the helicopter and we get up to altitude, Jumpmaster has us stand up, and I remember looking out one of the windows, and I couldn't see the drop zone or anything. I just see sky and earth. And then that was the last thing I remember on the helicopter. I don't remember jumping. And then about, oh, about three days later, I, I kind of have a consciousness of, of being in the hospital. I may have been unconscious before them but i it's it's not real clear to me so from that okay. from being on the airplane to several days later being aware that's my conscious memory my unconscious was i i knew i was injured i could see my body my my consciousness or my soul or what you know call different things i feel like i'm leaving it i see it and it's busted up and the guys are there trying to help me and but I never felt any pain it was the most beautiful loving feeling I was surrounded by that light it was a soft like a 40 watt level of light completely engulfing me I look look back and, and okay. that light is energy it's energy it was, it was it was love I was just embraced by it but it and you're not in your body but it, it, there's not the transition isn't made yet, so I feel like I'm still in my body, and I'm looking kind of over my right shoulder area, and I see this bright light, and there's three figures there, and somehow I'm communicating. I know that they are there for me, and I am I am moving to them. My my soul, my consciousness is moving. I'm not in my body, and I'm I'm just thinking how wonderful this is. How and I'm going I, to, I perceived it to be family. I don't know who it was, what it was. I just perceived that I knew them. And I got almost yeah. to those figures, those three figures. The light was very, very bright still behind them. And there I heard a voice, and it's still in my head as clear today as it was then. It said, it's time to go now. And... I was flooded with all kinds of thoughts, um, and I said, I'm not ready to go yet, and I turned away from that light, and that was the last of my unconscious memory that I have. So, well, conscious, unconscious, wow. conscious. When I knew I was coming to in the hospital, I couldn't move and I couldn't see. And my my longtime friend Mike was there. He had come up, and from Florida, 
and they let him in. They thought I was going to die. They took accident pictures and things, and and uh, Mike put a pen in my hand for me to write because I had tubes all in my throat and nose. I couldn't talk, and I was being assisted with ventilation, and. My concern was I wanted to get back to do my job, is what I'm thinking in my head. I want to get back to do my job. But I know if I'm blind, I won't be able to do my job. So I wrote the question, am I blind? And the doctor lifted my eyelids up and shined a light in them, each one of them, and said, can you see that? And I guess I motioned yes, and he said, see, you're not blind. And then my next thought was, well, I can't move. Maybe I'm paralyzed. And if I'm paralyzed, I won't be able to get back and do my job as a paraeskman. And I wrote, is my, is my neck broken? And I do have some breaks in it. It's compressed. It's fractures. But they, they said, no, you're, you're not, your neck's not broken. And at that point, I knew I was in the best care possible. They were going to take care of me. And someday I would get back and do my job. So from there, I just, I just relaxed, went back to sleep, and said, it's not in my hands any longer. And medical doctors and and God, and and I'm one day I'll be back doing my job. So I got back to the several months later, about three or four months later, I did get back to my regular base, and I talked to the flight surgeon, and he, he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'm. My confidence was shattered. I was I was kind of scared leaving the hospital, you know, like, oh, something's going to happen. But I said, you know, I don't really know what I want to do now, but I want the chance to get healed as much as I can and do my job again if, if I'm able. He said, okay. Mm-hmm. And the flight surgeon, he never talked to me again. He was like, you go on, do do what you can. And you know, somebody had asked me, why did, you know, why, how can you keep doing that? And I'm like, you know, I look at the, the shoulders of the giants that I stood on to be able to do that job as a pararescue man, another pararescue before me. And there was one instructor at the schoolhouse, Don Bear, a senior master sergeant, when I was a student, and he had had two parachute malfunctions, one in the land and one in the water and crashed and burned both times. And I told us, I've only had one parachute accident. I can't quit yet. So he's had two or three. So it's just that. Wow. Super impressive. <laughs> Super impressive. And you, you, do you, do you miss it? Do you miss the camaraderie? Do you miss the, the job itself? Every day. You know, and after I got out, you know, and, and a couple years after that, I, I went back overseas doing some contract work and then came back here. And um, now, you know, it's with the, so I was with the guys, you know, other military units and stuff, and they were also doing contract work, military guys. And that was good, you know, being around guys and doing it. And and, and the last several years, I've, I've linked up with two of my uh uh, buddies that I was stationed with in England, who we used to do a lot of climbing over there, and and we formed our old man adventure club, and um, we started our we started with Devil's Tower. We climbed Devil's Tower uh, about three years ago, and we each take a turn. We each pick each year. One of us picks where we're going to go. Uh, so Devil's Tower, 
uh, was my choice, and Rod Olney picked the Grand Tetons, and then this year, uh, Kurt Plotz picked the uh, Castleton Towers, and that's where I just came back from, from Utah, which was fantastic there because uh, our climb coincided with the Warriors on Cataract, Red Solheim, uh, Karen House, and uh, Lou that's uh, the, setting this up, the Warriors on contract, and and with worldwide river expeditions, uh, they took us on a raft trip down the river, or on a river on Moab, which just happened to be you know, one of the super highest water and fastest water in almost 40 years because of all the massive snow over this past winter. And that was uh, you know, like 70,000 cubic feet a second of water in your face when you're hitting those rapids in Cataract Canyon. Our climb was hard. We climbed with a guy, we hired two guys, Jason Reese and Lindsey Ham, two M's, double the meat, Lindsey Haminator. And uh, they made sure, they, they got us up the mountain. Um, we obviously are not the climbers that we were 30 years ago, and um, but we're, we still got up there. And But they the main thing they do is they 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 lead the climb and and they make sure that we stay on the route rather than getting off onto another very very hard difficult route. They're excellent. Um, it was it was awesome to get to the top. You know, I mean, it's just such a great feeling and like Spider Man climbing up a wall and you get to the top and it's just oh, it's just amazing. What's next? What are you gonna climb next? Next, we're going to Wales, North Wales, United Kingdom. It's our next uh, adventure because um, that's kind of where our starting grounds were, uh, RAF Woodbridge in, in England. And we would climb, we climbed primarily in Wales. We did get in Scotland and we got in the Dolomites in France. We worked with the gendarmes like, uh, for Mount Blanc and the Dolomites there, and, and some of the other areas. But Wales was our primary climbing area. And I know there's still a couple of uh, routes there. Cenotaph Corner is a very uh, famous climbing route in, in North Wales, in Snowden, near Snowdon, Snowdonia. And uh, we're going to go back and conquer it. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Scott, you do all these activities, but you're such a fit man still. What is your regular everyday fitness routine like? Is it running? Is it calisthenics? What do you do? What's your weekly workout routine like? You know, I, I try to incorporate all of those in there. Uh, my runs are, you know, not long, one to three miles when I can fit them in. Um, calisthenics, uh, push-ups, uh, and abs, flutter kicks, hello dollies, leg raises, uh, primarily in, in the different forms of push-ups. And, and I, pull-ups, I, I, I love to get out there and do the pull-ups because, I mean, I think that's a true test of your strength. Just to, I look at all the, the Instagrams of all these people that are just so awesome with the the abilities they have on on the pull-up bars and maybe i'll be there someday but right now where i live I, i'm not near a gym so 
I just find a tree and find a good branch and start doing pull-ups. And that's, you know, some branches are small, some branches are big. It's, it's some are easy, some are hard, but try to do that, uh, you know, at least three times a week. Four is better, as much as I can get it. Okay. But, you know, push-ups uh, and ab work, you can do it wherever you are. That's right. That's right. Certainly. So uh, a lot of athletes watch this show, Scotty, and, and I, I, everything I've heard about you and, and in this talk, you have a very, uh, an extraordinary mind, an extraordinary mindset, and a very specific drive. It's, you're so determined. Can you give advice to young people, young athletes on, you know, their advice towards chasing a goal or being focused to work towards something? What would you tell them? I, I, that's pretty much what you just said. Focus and working towards that goal is uh, discipline. Uh, just taking it upon yourself to do it. Don't wait for somebody else to, to make that schedule for you or make that plan for you. I mean, if you're in group activities, you know, certainly somebody may be leading it, but the discipline is on you. Maybe you may be in a team environment one day, but it's still, you are an individual and you've got to have that discipline. I, you know, and as an, when I went back as an instructor in the pararescue school and talked to different students and, you know, I said, now you're graduating, now it's hard because you've been in a, a year and a half, two year program it's laid out for you. Somebody's set your schedule. They've told you what to do, exercise, eat, sleep, whatever. It's a schedule, the whole thing. You don't have to think, but now you're going to a team and there's not going to be anybody there to tell you to wake up and go to work, go exercise. You've got to go do it on your own. You've got to set those goals and you've got to stick with them. And sometimes things get in the way, but that doesn't mean you have to stop forever. That just means you have to take a pause, regroup, and attack it again. Um, I also would tell them that once they graduate and they're walking down the street or on a base and they're wearing that beret, whether it's maroon for pararescue or red for combat control or green for special forces or a trident or whatever it may be, that somebody looking at you does not know you just graduated last month. You, they look at you as the expert. You are, you are a pararescueman or combat controller or whatever it may be. They don't say, oh, you just graduated. He doesn't know anything. They see that beret. So you've always got to be prepared, you know, whether it be studying and having that knowledge book knowledge, skill set, and the physical abilities to accomplish it because it is not easy out there. There's, there's, you're going to find a lot of situations that require that determination combined with that strength to get you through it or to get somebody else through. And as a pararescueman, you know, one of the things early on and you learn is if you cannot take care of yourself, you cannot take care of someone else. Then your job is to take care of other people, save other people. But when you get into that situation, 
you're also taking care of yourself. It may be the environment, the ocean, the mountains, the desert that you're battling to save them, or it may be carrying a gun in a hostile situation, but you take care of yourself or you can't take care of anybody else. Right. Right. Well, Scotty, you're, you're certainly one of the most determined human beings I've ever met in my life or I've had the pleasure of speaking with. I can't thank you enough for being on and uh, making time to do this. Uh, thank you for your service and uh, thanks for the chat and just being open to this. I can't thank you enough. Hey, Mark, I, I appreciate the invitation. I'm honored that you extended it to me and, and uh, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Uh, I'll absolutely stay connected and uh, wish you the very best, my friend. Thank you very much. Thank you. We are. We are.